everyone. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Exploring Cybersecurity, the podcast where we deep dive into all aspects of cybersecurity news and trends. I'm your host today, Jeremy Ventura, field CISO here at ThreadX, a managed API and application security platform. Today is episode four of the podcast series, and I'm super excited to be joined by my good friend and guest today, Mr. Ed Covert. With nearly 30 years in the cybersecurity industry, Ed is the head of cyber risk engineering at Bowhead Specialty Underwriters, which is a provider of cyber risk insurance. Ed has a master's degree in information technology management and specializes in organizational leadership and change management. Ed is also a published author and can be a regularly seen speaker at cybersecurity events and forums across the country. Ed is also on the board of directors of the local ISC Squared chapter in Los Angeles. Additional details about his publications, community involvement, and work history will be in the link below at edwincovert.com. But without further ado, Ed, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. It's, I, we've been, I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Absolutely. And uh, for the audience that doesn't know, Ed and I uh, go way back. Uh, Ed and I are both located here in lovely Southern California, even though we just had a uh, hurricane, a Her- hurricane and earthquake. Yeah, yesterday. a hurricane. <laughs> What a day. Sunday was an interesting day. We survived. We're we're good. We're good. And we're uh, super excited here to be uh, chatting on some really interesting topics today that I know uh, touches uh, true to both Ed and I. Um, But Ed and I were actually just together at the local uh, Las Vegas Black Hat 2023 conference just uh, two weeks ago now. And uh, Ed and I had a good conversation. But Ed, I want to turn it over to you. How was your uh, how was your conference? I know for a lot of people, it was the first some of them was the first time back in a long time after COVID. Um, but how was your conference? Was there anything kind of super cool that you saw from a vendor or a speaking session or through conversations? Yeah, the conference was good. Um, I mean, Black Hat's always a good time. One of these days I'm going to continue on and stick around for DEF CON too, but there's only so much Vegas I can take in one sitting, oh, yeah. unfortunately. Um, I think the things that caught my attention, is, it wasn't necessarily a vendor. It was just it was more of a vibe and a feel. Um, AI is still sort of at the top of everyone's mind. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's making people nervous because they can't define it. They, can't, they don't know how it's going to impact things. It's just it's very nebulous, but we all know it's there to a certain degree. Um, but the other thing, actually much more aligned with my own line of work, is how big a deal cyber insurance was, cyber risk insurance. Um, and just... I mean, there was a whole mini track dedicated just to cyber risk insurance. Um, so I, those are sort of the big takeaways. I mean, and then, you, you know, there's yeah. always standard vendors to meet and new cool tech to look at. And, you know, everyone goes to a party or two or an event. So, yeah, it was good. It was a good conference, I thought. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think this was definitely the year, which I think we all kind of expected it with just so much news around generative AI and this explosion here in the last couple, six months or so that, uh, from RSA to Black Hat, that time frame, there was a lot of security vendors just saying, oh, yeah, we're now powered by AI. Right. Or, oh, yeah, we're doing AI security. So yeah. I think going into it, we knew that there were going to be boots and banners that just said, oh, AI, AI cybersecurity. So I wasn't a shock when uh, walking around the trade floor and seeing a lot of vendors talk about AI or speaking sessions around AI. It, I think the, even the keynote was AI. Yeah, it reminded me of RSA, I want to say it was like three years ago maybe, uh, where everything was machine learning. Like that, yep. that phrase was in everyone's mouth. And this year at Black Hat, it was very much everything is AI. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, kind of leading into today's conversation, 
I think we're just scratching the surface. I think you would agree with me on that one yep. on AI and how organizations are either going to leverage or not leverage it within their own employee base, but also how are you going to secure this thing? And where is the intended use? And for security vendors or even technology companies, how do I incorporate it effectively into products or services that I may provide? And I think we're just touching the, the surface on here where um, it's going to be probably a wild next couple of years of uh, regulations, privacy laws, um, not that it's already hasn't started, but I think it's going to really um, accelerate here. I would agree. I think it, it, it is a whole new frontier. It is. It reminds me to a certain degree uh, when SaaS became big, right? And there was a whole set of discussions around, okay, well, what does this actually mean from an application stamp, security standpoint and data privacy standpoint? This is not my, it's my data, but it's not my application. Um, it, it sort of changed the parameters around security to a certain degree, um, both good and bad. I mean, there's, you know, and I think AI is, we're at that same sort of inflection point in my view. For sure. Yeah. Yep. And it brings us into a great segue here, which is actually the first topic of our podcast, uh, talking about regulations and kind of the segue and where the entire industry going is just last month. The SEC, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, released a new disclosure for public companies on announcing uh, whether in their 8K and their 10K about what they're doing as far as cyber risk management, but also if there was a material incident, which we're going to get into what that actually means. Um, but you know, just off the the 30,000 foot view, SEC, you know, I know I'm not sure about you, but when I go through my LinkedIn feed or I'm looking at news articles. We've got a lot of opinionated people yeah. in cybersecurity yeah. where they came up with regulations and some people, just like anything, some people are saying, whoa, whoa, it's way too much. Like public companies are definitely not ready for this. Uh, but then we also have other people who be like, no, it's kind of a good kick in the butt, even though it's coming. I think it's December 18th to hold that date, like when it's getting effective. But what are, you, what are your thoughts? What have you seen so far just before we even dig into it, just on the SEC coming out with these yeah. uh, disclosures? I am firmly in the good kick in the butt camp, if I'm being honest. Um, we, yeah, it's December 18th or mid-December, somewhere in that time frame, for large companies. Smaller companies, I think, have till June, if I remember correctly, an additional 180 days. Um, I, I think it's overdue. Um, I think it is one of those. There's a certain amount of accountability that's coming to it. I wish they had gone a little farther in some areas, although I don't know how they would have. I mean, my, in my dream, fervent brain of dreams, it would be they would have done a couple other things, but I, the practical side of me says I don't know how that would have worked. Um, but overall, I'm, I am, I think it's a wonderful movement forward, and I am happily embracing the new world order. Yeah. I completely agree with you, too. I think it, it was needed. Somebody had to step in and do this. I think it was only a matter of time, too. I, I remember they came out, I don't know if it was March or the, earlier this year, they came out with their initial kind of proposal right. of you know, what they want, and that got a lot of backlash. I think I remember, I think I saw something that was hundreds, if not thousands of different letters from uh, security and technology industry leaders and companies saying, well, this needs to be um, amended, or this needs to be taken out, or this needs to be included, or this is overstepping for the SEC. And so I think with that, they've now released disclosure, but I think one of the biggest debates right now with the hot topic is this whole notion on the disclosure of within or after an, a material incident is determined, 
you now have to report it in this 8K for your investors and shareholders uh, within four days. Yeah, four days after determined materiality. Yeah, that is, it's a bit of a cop-out in my view, but it's also, I think, a necessary cop-out. There, realistically, there was no way you could, I shouldn't say that. There's not a good way to get disclosure stuff out in four days after incident, right? right. After, you know, you, you call as an incident. It's just, it's not practical. There's too much unknown or too much unknown rather going on. It's chaos. We've all sat around on incident response. There's a lot of chaos and you know, data that you get one minute is going to change 10 minutes later when you've got new information coming in. So I, I like the materiality. Um, I think that it's very clever that they allow companies to define materiality on their own. <laughs> I saw a lot of comments about that. Well, what's materiality mean? Well, materiality means what you'd say it means. The key, though, is being consistent. And that's so, you know, ThreadX versus Bowhead, we're going to have different definitions of what materiality means. But as long as we consistently use those definitions or pull them from other resources, other processes that we already have in place, then I think you're fine. I, I'm not a lawyer, so don't take anything I say with with any sort of legal foundation, but it, it's consistency. Right? You have to, if you do the same things over and over again and use the same criteria to measure materiality um, as best you can across all aspects of risk, be it cyber, be it financial, whatever, um, I think you can make the case that you're not in violation of anything. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you hit on something, and that, that's kind of what I want to take this one to, the word material. And I think you're 100% spot on. The word material means different things for different companies, yeah. depending on industry regulation, depending on where their employees are located, depending on who even attacked them, what was actually going on, what kind of data potentially was lost. Was are you a healthcare uh, or a hospital and you lost PHI information? Or are you a, a banking or a bank customer and you lost you know, sensitive data information or credit card information. Right. I think the nature, the scope, I think that's kind of how they're, they're leaving it pretty general to your point, I think on purpose. And at least that's my assumption, but yeah. I do think there may be some flexibility and or changes that once this actually gets enacted, okay, did we do the right thing here? Is four days to your point originally, like I remember the, it was first miscued that four days and about the incident, and then I remember there was one comment I read. It was like, well, the average dwell time, dwell time, which is mean time to respond minus mean time to detect, that's way longer on industry standards than four days. So, like, you're going to disclose uh, we had an incident, and you don't have all the facts still. Right. And I think that's kind of the big concern, or you're going to disclose after four days of a material incident what you determined, and did you just actually cause more risk to the incident that's ongoing? Right. Uh, to, for hackers out there. And so I think there's a lot to figure out. Um, I don't know. I, I, time will tell. <laughs> but I, I do hope that the SEC, in my personal opinion, is also flexible and continues to listen to security leaders and organizations to make changes if necessary. I think there's, and I, I agree with you, I think there is an, an unintended, perhaps positive, for my opinion at least, benefit to this whole thing, is it will focus or force organizations publicly traded organizations to understand what is material in cyber, right? We don't do a lot of this in my view. Um, we, we, 
we're going to get, we'll get into risk qualification versus quantification later, but we spend a lot of time doing high, medium and low risk type exercises, which aren't in my view, perhaps the best. I think there's, you know, you get a more quantification aspect to your risk by understanding what is material and material in a financial sense, right? What is going to cost your business, your enterprise, some loss. And, and having that this conversation about what a material incident is, is, is sort of a forcing function, in my view, of, of getting to better risk management. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I, I do think there, I, while the SEC didn't actually lay it out in this new disclosure, I do think there's going to be almost, um, trying to find the word here, but there's going to be a movement where public companies, including private companies, even though they weren't technically listed, it was more focused on public companies, um, the board, let's talk about the board and their knowledge of cybersecurity and or do we have a senior leader that's external that we can bring onto the board, for example, and educate and or provide an opinion or a strategy from a board level. And I think while it wasn't 100% explicitly laid out, um, they were in the, what I mean specifically laid out was like challenging the expertise of the actual board on their secure, cybersecurity knowledge. I do think there's, as a public company, I don't think most companies, I don't know if you agree with me on this one, I don't think most companies are prepared for this, especially coming in four or five months. Yeah. I, I So the original draft of this required a cyber person on the board or somebody on the board with, with sufficient cyber knowledge. Now, I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head if they actually defined what that meant. Um, but I, I took it to mean much like Sarbanes-Oxley required a cyber person, um, something along those lines. That obviously was pulled out of the out of the final version. So that's the one I think everyone, at least the people that I've run into and talked discussed with this, I think that's the one that they thought was going to be in and they were sort of looking for and can't put hanging their hat on. You know, oh, we got to have a cyber person on the board. Now you don't, but I don't think that reduces the uh, the risk to the to the organization by not, you know, it doesn't, you still have to have cyber knowledge, right? You still have to know cyber knowledge in some way, shape or form. It's just whether or not you've got a person dedicated to it or not is, is sort of the question. I think the board is in for, or the boards are going to be rapidly spinning up their, their knowledge. It's again, a forcing function. Right. I think it'll take a while. I think you're not going to see a lot. It's just like Starbucks Oxley, you know, it was again sort of regulatory chaos when that first happened. Uh, it, but it'll settle down, and people will make sense of it. But Doc, I do think there there was like one theme as you were talking about there, as you were saying the board is starting to get a little, uh, let's call it antsy. The what the word I want to use was uh, a sense of urgency. Yeah, I, I think that has to your to your point, right? The forcing function of this is, I think, if you're sitting there and you're a CFO or CIO or chief marketing officer, whatever it might be, and you're on a board, I think you have to subconsciously think here, like, hey, there's a sense of urgency. Like, if I'm not in tune or in depth with cybersecurity, I may start trying to get some resources or get a little bit more tuned in with my team that's actually doing security and figure out, okay, how does this actually affect my function, my department, my role? And I think, I know you and I both talked about this, even my time as a, I was an interim response consultant earlier in my career, and we would go in and do uh, tabletop exercises 
and we would bring in different department leaders like, oh, we are going to bring in the director of finance or the CFO or marketing. And I remember going through these run books and playbooks of like, okay, a ransomware attack happened. What are you doing in a ransomware attack? And it was the Spider-Man meme where all the, they're all pointing at each other. Right. Where they're like, uh, I didn't know I was involved in a cybersecurity incident. Right. And I think this SEC disclosure and some of the other regulations and laws that we're seeing kind of get put in place is really, again, I, I love the word you use, that forcing function. It's going to drive more urgency. It's gonna, it has to, right? Because what's going to come out of it? If you do not disclose of an incident in the four days or you didn't have all the materialistic information included in that 8K or that 10K for investors, are you going to be fined? Is, yeah, there's real consequences. That's, that's a, in, in nothing, nothing motivates people like, uh, like consequences. <laughs> Meaningful consequences. Right. Yep. So. Yep. No, I totally agree. And then, uh, I mean, even look at the FCC now. Uh, we know it's coming because even the FCC, uh, with the SolarWinds, I believe he was the CEO, and their CSO, Chief uh, Security Officer, uh, just earlier this year, too, they also sent out Wells Notice. Yep. Which is all about, you know, potential civil liabilities or enforcement that's going to be taken on improper, again, I'm not going to get into it, but like improper notification of security instance and what was happening. And so if they're sending out Wells notices and potentially going to take some civil action here, um, I do think there's going to be probably be a list of consequences, whether it's fines, um, whether it means, uh, if, you know, if you didn't properly disclose and you're the CISO or CIO, you can never work for a public company again. Yeah, that, it, that might, that last one might be a smidge extreme, but I, I get your point. There's going to be, and this has been a long time coming, in my opinion. Right, the accountability um, in in cyber. Now, you can also make the case <laughs> that that accountability goes both ways. It's not just the company that is you know, that is implementing a cyber program. It is also the tools upon which they rely on. Yep. Um, and I don't know that that's been addressed quite as thoroughly as I would have preferred, but. Um, at the end of the day, you're a public company, you're accountable to your investors. This is part of that effort to make you accountable. Yeah, I agree. So I agree. And I, I think it's a, it's a great segue, and you mentioned it already, but I, I know we've been answering to get on this, and I know this is uh, this sets home for you because it's a lot of part of your work too at Bowhead. Um, risk management, and then specifically, you already touched upon this uh, at a high level, but risk quantification versus risk qualification. For audience members out there, um, sometimes we hear that and it can be sometimes a little confusing. Uh, Ed, in, in your world, in your experience, how would you break down the difference between risk quantification versus risk qualification? Sure. Starting there. So uh, a qualitative risk analysis is, is an effort that uses ordinal terms, right? So things like uh, low risk, medium risk, high risk, based on some set of criteria. Um, a quantification or quantified risk process actually uses dollars is really what it comes down to uh, and probabilities. So you, there are ways to probabilistically determine the likelihood and the impact of an event. Um, and it, it's a lot of it's sort of shifting terms. Um, if, 
for folks who are really, <laughs> this became this like my pet project over the summer, is just how many people I can convince to stop using qualitative risk and going into quantitative risk. Um, I would recommend, uh, there's a great, actually, I have it here. I'm going to hold it up for the camera. <laughs> I keep it by my desk. We'll put the link below. Yeah, uh, let's see, there we go. How to measure anything in cyber risk. It's a classic tome on the subject, but things like the open FAIR model, certification model, factor analysis, and information risk is what FAIR stands for. Essentially, it is a different way of looking at risk that is more in tune with the actuarial models that insurance companies use. Um, there's a reason that we can do car insurance online without ever having to talk to an insurance agent is because they have all the back-end actuarial models over the last 80 years that can literally predict with a reasonably good level of accuracy your likelihood to be in an accident based on any number of factors, right? That's why they ask all those questions. We will eventually get there um, on the cyber side. At least I believe we will. Um, it'll take us longer because it's newer and we don't have all that data. But in the interim, we can start making ac reasonably accurate predictions on the likelihood of an event causing um, some sort of loss. Yeah. I was trying to find the right word. And it's because vulnerability in... In, an, in a quantification model is different than vulnerability in a qualification model. So um, a vulnerability in the quantification model is the probability that a uh, threat event becomes a loss event. Right? That is not the same as when we say vulnerability traditionally, what, what it means. So you're making sure we're using the right terms and, and or meaningful terms is it's just this is the thing that I've been going on, and a lot of it is, has been influenced by my relatively recent entry into the insurance industry. Because I am not, as you know, a, an insurance person by training; I'm a cyber person by training and experience. Um, but it's been fascinating. I mean, it's just just seeing how these this segment of the organization or the industry works. Um, I'm just I'm all in. I'm all in on it. For sure. No, and it's great, and I thank you for that explanation um, as well. Because when I when I hear you speak about it, and I and I know you live this more on a daily basis, it almost seems like an evolution of maturity, where a lot of organizations are still, and maybe it's the industry doing it on ourselves. We just came from oh that vulnerability is low, or that incident I don't know it's high, um, versus taking I can just imagine taking that and being at a board, being a CISO and speaking at the board level and be like, okay, you show the board and you know we had this incident or if we don't buy this product or this tool, uh, we have a, it's gonna be a medium catastrophic event, whatever it might be, versus being, this is actually a potential risk of revenue or this yep. is where the likelihood that we're gonna potentially um, lose uh, revenue or whatever it might be with a supply chain, for example. I can just see the evolution and the maturity of the conversation where, especially people that aren't necessarily as technical, where there is a lot of benefits of moving to the risk quantification model versus the qualification, where it's a little bit more just, again, it's honestly black and white, but it's more, it's low, it's medium, it's high, this is it. Yeah, and I, I would, so two points. One, um, I absolutely agree with you that it is, it is a maturity thing. And it, so I don't wanna, I'm not trying to shame anybody who's using qualification. I mean, I did it for most of my career. Um, but it is an ability to better communicate 
in a language that the business understands. Because I have I've said for years that, uh, and anybody who's ever worked for me in the last <laughs> three decades will hear, have heard me say this, uh, uh, we exist as an industry to serve the business. If we're not serving the business, then we're wasting our time. So, so, that, so that's point number one. Point number two is there is a lot of discussion going on right now. Um, granted, a lot of it's in the, in the insurance industry, but on this idea of cyber risk quantification. There are a number of tools out there. Um, I'd say there's three that I've had discussions with in the last, you know, most of the last week. Um, that, that's what they do. They ask questions. They, they have um, actuarial models that they're using, uh, Monte Carlo simulations, that sort of thing, to give you that one in a hundred op, you know, option of, if this this is the big event that will occur once every 100 years versus what's our annualized uh, average loss and so they have all those those models um it's getting that data into uh into the hands of more cyber people and outside of the hands of necessarily of, of the insurance people but that just takes time it's interesting and so right there like and i was actually gonna ask a question you kind of kind of went right there too where can you solve this with a tool or does it really start with a mindset change of how we think about and I love what you said like we're in the business of supporting well cybersecurity is in the business of supporting the business right. and so it's both I think you can solve it with a tool but you you don't just throw a tool at it without some basic underlying concepts right we yep. nobody would throw um, I wouldn't turn a pick a vulnerability scanner at random tenable for instance at somebody who doesn't understand vulnerability management that just seems silly. They use, you need to have the, at least the basic understanding of what is, the tool is supposed to be doing, how it's supposed to be helping you. Um, so having that sense, um, in that foundational understanding of how we measure risk, um, I think is important. Yeah, no, that's, it's super insightful that you, know, you, you described it and also kind of, again, without picking on, because to your point, right, and I've worked for many organizations, even some of the consulting organizations, we were so focused on the risk qualification. Right, using numbers or using like it's low again, medium high, versus actually taking that approach of the quantification aspect of it. Um, right, and, and if, if we get into it, I mean, we, we're 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 still right. teaching high, medium, and low risk um, in cyber courses. Either the yep. you know, it's it's just it, we like color charts, and we're told oh the color charts are easier for the executives <laughs> to understand, and what we really need to be doing is taking that. And this, these are not original ideas. These are ideas that came directly out of this book. So I'm not taking anything away from it. Anyway. Um, is, okay, we can still do the quantification modeling. We can still have all those points. And we can translate those into this is what, a, but that requires executives to have a, a risk tolerance level that they understand. I'm willing to accept this much risk, i.e. this much loss, before I want to put in a control, right? Um, so then you can start having discussions about is this actual risk within our tolerance level because it's only going to cost us X number of dollars and that's just the price of doing business or do we want to spend some amount of resources, time, money, what have you, to put in a control to address that risk because it's outside of our, our risk tolerance level. <clears throat> but those and are discussions ideally, that we need to be having. And it ideally leads to objective business outcomes. Yes. Right? And I think that, yes. that's, that's kind of the key where you're going right there, where understanding 
tolerance, avoidance, acceptance, right? And I know we could probably do a whole podcast about risk management, risk acceptance, risk avoidance. <laughs> right. And, and, um, We'd be here all day. I, I don't know. We, we might put people to sleep on that one, but that's okay. No, no, no. no. The people that listen to your, this podcast are going to absolutely get it. They're going to love it. Trust me. Um, but no, and I think, you know, going back, right, it leads to business outcomes. And I think having that approach and having that mindset, having that framework is ideal for how we as security leaders can also think about, think bigger, think bigger about the organization. I think sometimes we do it on ourselves in a way where, I don't know if it's because we're so, sometimes the industry itself is technical or maybe a little bit more introverted. It's we think sometimes about problems like this and we don't necessarily look at it at a grand scheme, a grand scale, right? How does this, how does me adding this tool for the marketing team actually affect the entire business? Even though, for example, I don't know, maybe it doesn't have single sign-on, right? <laughs> I'm picking a wild example, but right. it's actually not that wild. No, it's not. It's that's the problem. It's not that wild. <laughs> exactly. It's like, okay, do I have risk acceptance or to your point, a risk tolerance? Like, okay, it really is, is a business decision. They really need it. It doesn't have all the security controls. Ideally, we would like from a security team, but can we make an exception or have a tolerance level um, where we allow it? Well, and again, it, it, it comes back to this forcing function, right? So if you start treating risk in a quantified manner, then you start having discussions about what it means to have risk and what that risk can apply, how that risk applies to your business. I mean, now we're tying it back to my, my other great passion in life, enterprise security architecture, right? In a, in a SAPSA model, which is my favorite, not, no, not to pick on TOGA or anything, but SAPSA is where I, where I like to spend my time. Every business objective should be tied to a control, and every control should be justified by a business function, right? So a business objective. So this idea of two-way traceability, forwards and backwards, I mean, that, that's pure risk management. If you start adding quantification on top of it, then you can actually see how these things work, how they link. Wow. I love the, the traceability. I know. <laughs> like, I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Could you give the audience an example of how you've seen this either work? And it doesn't have to be a real life example, but how, again, how that can actually lead to the traceability aspect. How a control leads to a business objective and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, sure. So we did this uh, at Deutsche Bank. Um, and there, there are several iterations uh, past what my team did originally at Deutsche Bank when I was when I was over there. But um, and they're doing great work. So kudos to them to keeping that up. The lady who runs that now is uh, she's brilliant. She used to work for me. Um, but anyway, so the the point is you have an, a a mission objective. So let's think about the bank. Bank has an objective of keeping its ATMs up twenty four by seven. That is a customer metric that they need to hit as a business objective. So then you start thinking through, okay, so what does that mean? What are the technical parts of that problem? And then you get into security drivers. What are the drivers that enable that technical solution to exist, which allows the bank to keep its ATMs open? And so you, you go through this whole process. Uh, at the end of the day, you get to a specific control, either management, technical, or operational control that says, if enabled, this will keep part, you know, it'll support keeping the objective up. I mean, it, it's, sometimes it's a many-to-many, -many, sometimes it's a one-to-many. Um, 
but you know this control might be battery backups in the ATM. That is a technical redundant control that allows that ATM to stay up 24 hours a day. Um, now, what you can also do, that's the forward looking way. If you have a control tied to that ATM that says um, the control, the, the, for high visibility so nobody trips on it, it's gotta be painted neon, hunter orange, right? Is that control tied to that mission objective of keeping that ATM up 24 a day? Nah, probably not. So you can make, you start going backwards and figuring how it got to that control or how it got to that, from that control to the mission objective. That's the two-way traceability backwards. That's the justification. And what you find out is you don't actually have to spend the money on the paint and the resources to paint the box or the extra cost for your box manufacturer um, to make it hunter orange. So everyone can yeah. see it because it has nothing to do with the control of the mission, mission objective of keeping the ATM up 24 hours a day. So that's... I, I think you just gave a class on decision-making 101. <laughs> <laughs> like, it co that covers multiple different concepts and topics there, but uh, I think I think it's fantastic. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I, I, I just made that one up. I've, I've never used the Hunter Orange variant. I've used the ATM uh, version before, but I've never... Done the hunter orange. All right. that's... I told you I was going to put you on. No, the I appreciate today. it. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, that's get to awesome. flex those muscles, those ESA muscles, every <laughs> once in a while. Absolutely. Uh, well, with just a couple minutes left, Ed, um, I want to talk about uh, one more topic, um, and that's really about it, it's all related, right? It's all related from I love how we went from the SEC regulations disclosures to naturally how I kind of just flowed into our next conversation of risk quantification versus qualification and risk management, and then. It goes to my final one. What happens when an organization isn't properly doing one of these things? We typically see them get popped, right? They have incidents, they have breaches, not all the time, but they're more prone to it. And I think when you don't have these processes defined, you're not actually following where they're not in place, or even more where the security leader, how many times we've seen this security leader is saying, we need this, we need this, we need this. And executive management or boards are saying, eh, well, we've never had an incident before, so I'm not gonna give you funding to go put that process in place or buy that tool or hire resources specifically to do, let's call it GRC or risk management. Right. And what happens is a lot of times it always comes back down to kind of this concept of cyber hygiene or fundamentals. And I do think this is a very big core component of fundamentals and how organizations can invitably become more secure or at least lower that risk tolerance or even have better processes in place for that invitable when an incident happens. You know, it's happening, but we had the measurements, we had the processes and policies in place that we can effectively mitigate, contain, and remediate, right. for example, this threat. So I know I just talked there for a little while and kind of it's tied okay. it all together, but I, I want to hear I want to hear from you. How often are you still seeing just organizations failing the easy things? Just the, the cyber hygiene of it. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer that by giving you a, a little context. Um, I had no idea that I would end up in the insurance industry. Uh, and, but however I got here, I'm here. Uh, and I'm here because I firmly believe that it is insurance that is going to be driving the basic cyber hygiene that we've all been clamoring for. There was an article, and I'll have to dig it up somewhere. I saw it on LinkedIn. It was, it was somebody reposted it, essentially saying, 
people are making the same mistakes and so this you know they get the same outcomes every time and it's been going on for years now so what i'm seeing is part of my job as as the head of risk engineering is to evaluate programs that come in and that want cyber insurance so um so what i'm seeing is it's getting better um and it's getting better because the cost of not getting better is becoming insurmountable not because of the cost of the incident um but the cost of getting insurance which is now becoming more and more required for certain industries um, and certain relationships is becoming untenable without some of these controls in place so you know your basics right identity solid identity and access management program uh, solid inventories of hardware software and data uh, instant response with forensics capabilities disaster recovery plans that have actually been tested not just tabletop but tested um backup restoration from backups that's done more than once a year I, this is a personal pet peeve of mine if anybody out there is listening um and then crisis communications is part of that disaster recovery program but all and those are all very broad sort of areas but having those sorts of basic things we know how to do these things um it's just it, it's it takes effort and it takes some resources to get it done but the cost of not having those basic things in place can be tremendous you see the cost rising for incidents across the board um, ransomware has gotten yeah 1.4 million now is like the average malware incident cost um, so it the cost of not doing it in my mind is far out outside the the cost of just getting it done and you'll be better off at the end of the day totally totally could have said a bit of myself i think over and over we've seen it especially in the last couple of years here where we go back and you know public information on how companies got breached or different incidents right. and i don't know how many times if not all of them it comes down to of course there are some sophisticated attacks out there right there's no sure. denying that but there's still you know, the employee clicking the phishing email yeah. when they knew not to click it. There's, oh, wait a second, we didn't have, we gave every developer a root access or admin access to our APIs and applications and we never had any role-based access control. Right. Or I knew I had that vulnerability out there and I just decided not to patch it and now it's exploited. Well, it, you know, prevention's better, ounce of prevention's better than a pound of cure. I get all that. Um, but you're going to get popped. Everyone is at some point is going to have, just like statistically, you're going to have a car accident, whether we like it or not. It's the ability to recover and respond to that is ultimately what we're looking for, right? Are you down for, because of the incident, are you down for a week? Or are you down for an hour? Because you've got instant backups that just roll over and everybody goes back to work. I mean, that's what we're trying to get to, I think, at some point, is that, that continuum from you're just using the NIST CSF, right? Well, I even use the new one that includes governance, right? So from governance to identify, to protect, or detect, respond, recover, that continuum. And it's not, those are not discrete steps. There's a continuum of control. And we need to be able to implement something akin to that. Absolutely. It's definitely a journey. Right? It is a journey. That- it's a journey. It takes time. It takes resources, as you mentioned. It takes buy-in, yep. right? It takes building that culture, and that starts a lot of times from top up, right? And it goes back again to our original conversation with boards and, you know, SEC regulations. It's it takes time, but it's it's a journey, and uh, you know, uh, you hit on a lot of great points, and I think this is going to be a, 
you're gonna, I think you're going to have a lot of questions from audience members that watch us that <laughs> want to know more, especially around some of the different points you made. So um, with that being said, we are coming up on time. Ed, I've got a couple minutes left here. Uh, do you have any final parting words for the audience? Could be anything. Uh, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like that one. I like that uh, one. It's, it's a long story. No, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Uh, Jeremy, it's always great to chat, chat with you. You said this would be like two guys at a bar having a conversation. That's exactly what it was. It's a little early for me to be drinking, but I like to pretend. Um, five o'clock somewhere. Five o'clock somewhere. Yeah, well, five o'clock somewhere. That's right. Um, but no, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been great. Absolutely. And thank you so much for uh, spreading your expertise, your knowledge um, through the years and years and decades that you've been doing this. And I think, you know, it's, it's going to really resonate with a lot of different viewers from people getting into cybersecurity to CISOs to board levels to people that are, aren't even in tech. Um, so, again, Ed, I want to appreciate your expertise coming on today and sharing all that knowledge. And for anyone that's listening, again, uh, in the links below, we will have uh, Ed's website, edwincovert.com, where you can find out more about his publications, speaking sessions that he's doing coming up, and a lot of great content that Ed puts out. Um, Ed, again, thank you so much for joining me today, and I uh, hope you stay safe out there. We have no more hurricanes here in California. Appreciate, the, appreciate that thought. No more hurricanes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, everybody, and for uh, attending today. Uh, for exploring cybersecurity. You can find all episodes on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming services. Um, so with that being said, thanks everybody and enjoy the rest of your day.